Welcome to Film in the Wilderness. Let me try that again. Welcome to welcome to Films in the Wilderness, a four-week limited podcast series during Advent 2021, brought to you by the Diocese of Southern Ohio. I'm Carl Stevens. I'm Chad Deering. And with us today is a uh, film student extraordinaire, uh, brilliant, beautiful, my daughter, Ella Bush Stevens. Hey, Elle. Hi. <laughs> Anything more you want to say about yourself? You covered it. <laughs> I covered it. <laughs> you're, you're a beautiful, beautiful yeah. student. What else is there to say? Right. You, you don't want to say more about how brilliant you are. Okay. <laughs> uh, and today we are going to be looking at Pedro de. Uh, sorry. And today we're going to be looking at Pedro Amudavar's really gorgeous film, Pain and Glory. Um, which came out in 2019, really kind of right before COVID hit. So it, watching it took me back to a better and simpler time. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, that's kind of apropos because there's a lot of better and simpler time in this movie. So the movie is structured around memory and then the present day. Um, our, our main character, Salvador Malio, I can't really say it like a Spaniard, but it was like Mayo. Mayo, Salvador, something, Mayo, (laughs) um, is a director who has gone through a lot of physical pain. There are problems with his back, he has uh, migraine headaches, he has trouble swallowing, and the movie starts by him talking about how as a child he went to Catholic school and because he could sing, he was excused from classes like geography and anatomy, and he had to learn those things for himself. And then the movie really is uh, about him encountering his past and coming to terms with his past through those encounters, uh, and in a way, sanctifying his childhood memories, finding the grace in them, uh, which is part of its great beauty. Is there anything else I left out of the plot description that either of you want to add? All right, so we will then dive in to the film itself. And again, listeners, just know that this is an entirely spoiler-filled podcast. (laughs) And we also have a a reading from scripture that we tie into the film we're discussing, and Judd is going to offer that to us now. Thank you. We are in the first week of Advent. And the scripture that is paired with pain and glory comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 25 through 36. Jesus said, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when you see these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. And that day catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Here ends the reading. Thanks be to God. So our scripture today uh, that is paired at the beginning of Advent uh, comes in a week in Advent where we tend to talk about hope. Uh, it comes in a week where we have apocalyptic passages that are normally in and a part of the story. And when we think about apocalypse, of course, it's not simply as our movie trailers would have us think about it, which is that the world has been laid bare and it's a father and a child on a barren road walking somewhere trying to survive or the rock leaping off of a cliff that is crumbling. <laughs> but rather, uh, the apocalypse is a revealing. Um, and there is a laying a bear in a sense, but it's a bringing to light. It is an opening up. It is you know, laying things out. And in the film that we have before us, there's certainly a lot of apocalypse. There's a lot of revelation. Um, revelation that's coming, it seems, upon reflection. Uh, and the other thing that I think that this week one of Advent tends to share with pain and glory is that in the same way it's all about revelation, it's also all about coming redemption hmm. and the coming Christ. And if there are two themes that run pretty heavily through pain and glory, I would say the themes of revelation and of redemption. Uh, and redemption often coming in each of, in a different way, in each of the three acts of this film, which if we're even to talk about it being three acts, um, this is a movie that plays with narrative uh, in, and meta uh, themes in a really incredible way, <laughs> all the way through to the last shot, um, which is quite revelatory in its own way. But in each of the three acts, you have Salvador coming across a different person um, who has played an incredibly significant role in his life and will play a role in his life in these interactions that are had and in each moment there is revelation for him and there is a kind of redemption that happens and i'm interested to hear from the two of you just where you found connections in overall with the text uh this week and then also if you think there's anything to my tying in of the idea that in this movie with salvador we get a number of revelation and we also get this path to redemption um yeah i want to go into that but can you tell me where you see the three acts dividing yeah i mean i i think i think for me where i would read that again like i said loosely uh -huh. <laughs> but maybe maybe i should say the three encounters but the three acts that i would see would be first his first act being um with alberto uh the former actor played uh, by a name that I have much trouble pronouncing, Asier Texendia, which I think is uh, really one of the supporting turns of the last several years. Yeah. Um, just a great performance in a role that could have been very much a caricature. Um, so in his interaction with Alberto, the actor who he had used to work with and had a falling out with 30 years previously, uh, a second act kind of surrounding his conversation uh, with Federico, uh, who was his long lost lover from a similar time period, um, who he, Salvador himself, had kind of nursed through and tried to help heal from a heroin addiction. 
unsuccessfully so before the end of their relationship. And then finally, um, in his interactions with his mother, uh, mm-hmm. and those are certainly also tied into memories of his past uh, and Eduardo, um, the young man who was part of his own sexual awakening. But I think it really, it's centered more in some ways around his mother and his interactions with her. So those three interactions are the three where I find that he has moments of revelation leading to redemption. Yeah, I, I like that structure. I In the third act, I don't know, I agree his mother is really present mm-hmm. there, but I, I really feel that it's Eduardo who is a, the revelatory figure in a way. What do you think, El? I feel like the third act is, I feel like the first two acts are him coming to terms with people from his life, and the third act is more him coming to terms with like himself and his life, because his mother is obviously a part of him and probably shaped the way he views himself a lot, and like, Eduardo obviously made him realize things about himself and like trigger that sexual awakening. So I feel like the first two acts are more him coming to terms with people and the third act is more like a holistic him coming to terms with like himself and his whole life. Yeah, I I also think that there is kind of this inverse structure too where in the first act he seeks out Alberto, like it's his action. And then the second act, it's not Federico seeks him out after seeing this play that he's written, but in a way it, it's still kind of his action at one remove because he gave the play to Alberto to be done. So he was active in, in that. And it's really the third act where this painting kind of arrives magically out of nowhere, right? <laughs> that, uh, that Eduardo had painted of him where it seems like his, his own action is kind of out of his hands and in a way, I think it's because it's a movie that features prominently a, a play called Addiction, and because he himself experiments with the heroine uh, that that had destroyed his earlier relationship with Federico, in order to ease his pain, and then he too must be eased from his addiction. I, in a way, it's it's about surrendering power control, right? Which is like a, an AA thing, you know, like. He, he he becomes active again in the world by realizing that he really doesn't have much power to be active in the world. Like that the truly good things in his life are going to arrive out of nowhere uh, and, and then reconcile his past. And it's interesting that whenever he's not on the screen, which is very rare, it's people who are caring for him mm. or doing something that are caring for his story. Alberto bringing his story to life, a story of his to life again for the first time in a while. And then Federico seeking him out. We have Mercedes and the doctor working together to care for him. That there are, there are people who are continuing to act and to seek him and to love him. Uh, even, even in these times where he's, he's lost and is, you know, certainly, um, kind of gone into a reclusive state in a lot of ways. Yeah. So Elliot, you said something about his uh, his mother. Do you yeah. want to say more about that, her as a character? Oh. Well, I think it's interesting that kind of throughout the course of the film in the beginning, she's definitely painted in this kind of idealistic light where she just seems like the perfect mother and he seems to really look up to her. But as it goes on, we kind of see that she had some issues, which, you know, I think she may not be the nicest to some people. 
I feel like she was still an understandable character, but you know, I like how it kind of starts off with this idealistic view of his childhood, but as he comes to terms with his life more and more, we see that maybe his mom wasn't perfect, but that's like kind of okay. Yeah, and and in that third act, he spends a lot of time caring for her. Yeah. And it's really not until that third act that something is revealed to us as an audience, because it, until then, we didn't even know that she had died only two years before. So, you know, we watched the first two acts, seeing that he's struggling with physical pain um, and seems really shut down by it. And then we understand the third act that he's also suffering with emotional pain and probably living in the hangover of having been a, a full-time carer for his dying mother. Um, so again, it's it's uh, uh, an inverse structure because it's kind of at that moment where we realize that all these people have been taking care of him, which sometimes makes him seem almost monstrously selfish in the first two acts, uh, are simply doing what he himself had spent mm -hmm. a period of time doing. Um, so that there is, well, I think that that return to Carl's interesting that, you know, when we get the Eduardo story, which is unfolding for us throughout the film, but especially at the end and you, when we get that letter and you realize what an impact that he made on Eduardo and teaching him how to write and teaching him how to, um, teaching him arithmetic and reading and, you know, like just that, those gifts that he gave. Um, and then you think about the gifts that he gave Alberto in that role, and then again in giving him his play. You think about the gifts that he gave Federico attempting to care for him. And you realize that this is somebody who's maybe not as uh, not as selfish or not as unlovable as you know you might normally get with the uh, narcissistic artist, right? <laughs> and you're like, oh, you are someone who knows what it is to give away, who knows what it is to give love to others. Um, and yet I wonder sometimes about if he questioned his own belovedness um, and some of those wounds that maybe are still there from his mother. Yeah, people in pain tend to shut down and, and become unpleasant in way, you know, I mean, it just seems to be a fact, like pain kind of obstructs or occludes our normal behavior. So the fact that pain is part of the title of the movie should tell us some things about how he's going to act. Yeah. And also in the play, he writes that line that like love isn't enough to save the people that you love. So, I mean, you can see that like he loved Frederico, but couldn't help him with his heroin addiction. He loved his mom, but he couldn't take her back to the village where she wanted to die. So, I mean, reasonably it seems like he's just burnt out and probably thinks that all the time he spent caring for people wasn't enough to save them yeah that had yeah. maybe even no value really in yeah. some ways that's yeah. good that's good alex i think in that way you know okay he was left alone without federico and then he's left alone without his mother and and you know the just the finiteness of it and the limits that we run up against in ourselves but then, um, which which gets to what you were talking about with Carl around control. Sorry, Ella, cut you off. No, it's okay. I was gonna say I think the nice thing though is as we've seen, people come to take care of him when he can't take care of people anymore. And I think, like part of the message of the movie is that maybe one person's love isn't enough to save someone, but it doesn't have to be because there's a whole network of people who will always mm. help. Like, you know, Salvador has Mercedes and he has uh, Alberto and stuff, and then. 
uh, Frederico, he had his parents in Argentina and he eventually ended up fine. So it's like Salvador might feel like his love wasn't enough to save everyone, but we see that it doesn't have to be enough because, you know, there's other people. <laughs> That's, yeah, right. Right. It can be a conspiracy of, of love. I yeah. think uh, the Cory Booker thing, isn't that the name of his book? Instead of like an individual heroic effort. Even even the pain doctor, I you know, who we yeah. see only briefly, yet is like the most kind of understanding, <laughs> sympathetic, you know. Is a patient come in and say, oh yeah, by the way, I've, I've become a heroin addict. <laughs> and he, in some way, he doesn't really blink an eye. He's just like, okay, here's how we're going to get you off it we'll work through this <laughs> it's just like man i want that doctor <laughs> i mean i think in some ways that matches with uh, uh that matches with pedro on the dovater because uh in so many of his movies you have kind of wild fantastic things that happen surreal and then people just kind of keep going with their lives yeah which it's funny because in our movies, we want things to like stop dead and get very serious or focused on this or shouldn't everyone pay attention. But truly, like even the wildest, most surreal things happen in our life. And you know, tomorrow morning, we got to wake up and we have a class where our papers do. We have a sermon to write. We have a child to get up out of bed that has a runny nose. You know, it's like you got um, groceries. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just the way that, yeah, the way that the doctor treats it is just, okay. All right, you have this that's part of your reality and now how are we going to move on and in and through it and yeah just that the way that he tre he treats that just so naturally yeah yeah i i, I want to talk a little bit more too about uh, frederico i think so we had a little text chain yesterday where we were all admitting how much we had cried in the course of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and Jed, you said for you, it was it was the moment when Frederico comes into the story. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Like, what touched you so much? Yeah, I mean, I think there is watching the gift of watching this movie a second time was knowing the moment that we see Federico that he is uh, that he is the lost lover. <laughs> from 30 years ago that who had had the heroin addiction. And when we see him see this poster um, and you know that he's gonna hear his story brought to life mm -hmm. with such tenderness and such care. Um, and when, and just just coming, coming into that, um, that he was going to have a profound encounter 30 years later while wandering. Yeah, you know, and that we do get these gifts that seemingly come out of nowhere in the same way the painting comes out of nowhere later on for um, for Salvador and the way that art when put out into the world, we don't know who it's going to touch and when it's going to run into somebody, whether it's even somebody that it was made for or about, but it's going to end up um, providing an encounter that opens up some part of you and takes you back to a time or a place or to some deeper part of yourself mm -hmm. and why it's so important that we continue to make art from these deeply personal places <laughs> um, and to continue to offer it into the world as a gift. Um, you just don't know when it is going to be received. Yeah. And the way that he sits there and hears the story being unfolded um, was, really, was really quite something. Well, it's also, so after he sees the play, he goes and, and finds Salvador um, because Alberto gives him Salvador's phone number. And 
So uh, Salvador is woken up at night by this phone call, first from Alberto saying, oh, guess who showed up at the play <laughs> that we just did? And then a moment later, uh, Federico himself calls, and there's this beautiful shot. I, By the way, I would say shot for shot. It's only- <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah, yes. So mind-blowing. So mind-blowingly beautiful. I, I said to Ella at one point, I was like, why is it that even a doctor's <laughs> office is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in this movie? It's ridiculous. I, I mean, his kitchen cabinets. I mean, we haven't painted our kitchen yet. We're in the middle of fixing up a home right now. And and I may have to go those striking blues and reds. Yeah. <laughs> Out of this world. But speaking of reds, so he receives this call from uh, Frederico and he sits up in bed and we see him reflected in this red cabinet beside his bed, which maybe like a, a more astute viewer had already identified as the cabinet where he kept his heroin. But I hadn't yet. So I was sitting there thinking, well, why are we being shown his face reflected here i mean it's gorgeous but i don't know what's going on and then um uh he goes to the window he sees frederico outside while he's talking to him on the phone he says give me 20 minutes to shower and get dressed and then he goes to his cabinet to get high and then he doesn't like he stops himself because he wants to go into this encounter um clean which is something that in some ways uh alberto who's a full-on heroin addict has taught him, like, you know, sometimes you have to experience reality. Uh, you can't always be looking at it through the screen. So then Frederico comes in and they have this conversation about their past and we're to- and Frederico mentions that he has been married, although is now separated from his wife, that he has two young sons. Well, not young, but semi-adults. Yeah. And, um, and that he also uh, has a girlfriend now. And at the end of their encounter, Federico makes kind of a move. You know, it's like, do you want me to stay the night? And at that point, part of my soul is really worried <laughs> because I, I, I have, I, I think I have a problem with infidelity. Like I respect characters less when they engage in infidelity, you know? Um, and I was like, oh, I don't want to not think well of Salvador, you know? And yet Salvador resists and he says something about God. I don't remember the exact mm-hmm. quote but he's like let's just let this play out the way yeah. god intended it to yeah. um and to me that's the most beautiful mo- moment of the movie because i think what he's finding with frederico is a, a sense of his past and, a, and that past being redeemed mm-hmm. and he doesn't want any further action that could then uh, shade or or color or darken that past again he wants it to be clean. He wants it to be pure. So he so he resists. And then, of course, he goes, once Frederico leaves, he goes and uh, flushes his heroin. Uh, so it's this moment of liberation. I think it's probably the, um, the crescendo of the film, right? So. Well, and the way that, uh, the way that in that moment, Federico frees him from his heroin, growing heroin addiction, right? right. I don't know if we call it an addiction at that point, but it's use and in a way that Salvador never could. Yeah. Wow, I didn't even think of that. All right. Do you have anything to add, Elle? Mm, I have one thing that I thought of while you were saying that okay. slightly related. I think 
Uh, about the fact that this whole film is kind of a redemption story, I think one thing that's kind of really nice about that is that Salvador hasn't really done anything terrible that he has to be redeemed for. Like, all his failings are very, like, average human things that probably everyone has done, and I think it's nice that there gets to be a redemption story for just, like, the failures we have in life instead of some grand, terrible thing that he did, you know? Yeah, yes. It's like a low, uh, it's, it, it makes, it's more powerful because it's more relatable. Yeah. He hasn't murdered anyone. Mm -hmm. He hasn't raped anyone. Yep. He hasn't done anything yeah. truly horrible. Yeah, it's interesting because his, you know, his mother, of course, is praying to St. Anthony, the patron saint of lost causes as she goes to bed <laughs> each night. And, you know, thinking about how she still views him, I think, as lost. And she can still tell he is. And before her, you know, death, I think, uh, I think you could argue that, you know, he's still searching in a lot of ways. Um, even if it's interesting that he doesn't take what seems to be his real downward spiral with his body and mind until after in terms of the narrative that we're given. Yeah. But, but she sees him, she sees him as lost. Uh, and, and that there is, there's still something to be found. He still has something that he was seeking, right? <laughs> In, in himself, in reconciliation in his life, yeah. Well, that scene between them on the porch is so hard because um, they're both being brutally honest with each other in a way that is, I don't know, a little cringeworthy, <laughs> really, you know, where she talks about um, her disappointments with him um, and, like, that he... He seems to, she accuses him of, of treating his upbringing and his hometown with contempt, of treating, you know, the villagers he grew up with as hicks. And he, he refuses that um, portrayal of himself and his actions. But he, you can still see kind of the heart of the breach between them is um, that he's wanted to live the sophisticated life um, and won't let her participate in it. And she's wanted to live this um, very grounded life in, in the cave in the village, which we should talk more about that cave. Has she <laughs> wanted to live the grounded cave life, though? Because she was not happy about it when she got there. That's true, but she wanted to go back there <laughs> yeah, to die. In the end, yeah. And she dreamt of her neighbor coming, mm -hmm. so I guess I felt that's what I made mean, it grounded. I think in the end, but I think at the beginning. She probably grew to love that life, but... I mean, I think at the beginning it was clear she wanted more for her life, so I could see a bit of resentment there that her son went and had mm. the life that she originally seemed to want. Well, and Ella, to, to piggyback onto that, I mean, she says point blank to him, after her husband died, why didn't you bring me out with you? Why couldn't I come live here? I could have adapted. I would have found a way. I would have been part of this. And you know, she names that as like a major wound, right? So you you even get a sense that like, yeah, she may have come to appreciate the village in some ways. And and then it certainly it, she probably had to after her husband died and then her son rejected her coming to live with him. And she's left there in village. So the village became her home, right? So so in some ways I'd argue, I think both of you are right. <laughs> like I think I think the, the village did become this deeply meaningful place, but it almost by necessity. Yeah. Yeah. 
What? So what about that cave? Uh, so uh, <laughs> no, a clumsy crush of love. The most idyllic cave in history. <laughs> so this is the little uh, village that the family moves to, and it's all like caves uh, underground with like these open ceilings that rain fall through and potential for moldering and mildew and sunstroke, but still. I think you, Ella, said that people would pay millions yeah. of dollars to live there. No. I couldn't believe when the mom was mad they lived in the cave. That cave, <laughs> I see that cave on Instagram, and it's like billions of dollars. <laughs> Definitely an Airbnb for like seven ninety a night. Come live in the cave. But um, you don't really get a sense that life in the cave was very unhappy, at least at least for Salvador. Like as a child, he seems very happy to be there. Um, and and he and his mom seem at times to be kind of the same person, like same <laughs> mannerisms, same kind of uh, sometimes querulousness, but at, or at any rate, like a very firm idea that they should be able to tell other people what to do. <laughs> You can see how he became a director. He's <laughs> yeah. very directorial. Learned, he learned how to set a scene, how to decorate, how to order people around, how to how to fight for funding for what was needed. I mean, he, yeah. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And, and in some ways, it, it, uh, Eduardo is his ideal actor, you know, this, this illiterate... Um, I don't know what is Eduardo is, like a late teen, early 20s when they first meet. Um, this person who works in construction, but is also uh, a talented artist um, who Salvador teaches to read um, and who also draws. Um, but that that relationship is really powerful and, and kind of secretly at the heart of the film. And so I, I'd say like, I mean, it's hard to say because so many relationships are at the heart of this film. <laughs> but um, certainly a, certainly a foundational relationship in terms of who Salvador will become. And in terms of like, you know, as we're in a season where we talk a lot about an advent of signs of things to come, <laughs> you know, you see, you see in Eduardo the signs of what's to come, right? It's starting to point the way towards his sexuality, towards his identity, towards, you know, and the way that it unfolds in a generous and gentle way um, is really, is really wonderful as well. I think where, you know, Ellie, you were talking about in the redemption arc, how you so often get, um, you know, to have a redemption arc in a story means someone needs to have committed a heinous crime. <laughs> also, I think so often in stories where we uncover coming of age stories of sexuality, of sexual identity, you know, there, there can, it can be filled with so much cruelty as well. Mm. And not to say that there wasn't, and there certainly, I imagine, were many difficulties, which is why it was important to get to Madrid, right. <laughs> um, to be a gay man in this time in, in Spain, but um, to, to have his own awakening unfold in such a generous, gentle way was, was I thought, really beautiful. Yeah, I think, uh, for some reason, I'm thinking about what he says in the play about the what he says in the play about the movie theater of his childhood and how it smelled like, what was it? Pea and, and lilacs? Jasmine. Pea and jasmine. Like summer nights or something. And summer nights, right. <laughs> so like the kind of the, the profane and the sublime all mixed together in the experience of watching the movies. And, and definitely, I think 
as a director, that's what Almodovar does, is he mixes the the provate and, and the sublime and, and does it masterfully. Yeah, because yeah, I like how he does it in such a human way, because so many times movies are like, oh my god, a, it's a baby doll, but a dog ate it. It's juxtaposition and I'm edgy or something. <laughs> and it just kind of like slaps you in the face, but... I mean, life is a mixture of the profane and beautiful, and it's not a weird, edgy juxtaposition. It's just, like, how things are, and I feel like he captures that very well. <laughs> yeah, it's realism, yeah, really. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah, even, like, the scene when he goes to buy drugs, and there's somebody with a machete <laughs> attacking somebody else, and he, like, has to run away from it. You know, it's... That could be, like... Um, in another movie, that would be, like, played for extreme drama and kind of angst about the human condition. And there's a kind of a matter-of-factness in the observation of it here, which, uh, which again, is part of that mixture, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what else do we need to say about this movie? <laughs> well, the art design is gorgeous. Yeah, so say more about that. As a as a budding director oh who God. just studied sound design and, and color design mm-hmm. and everything else, what, what did you see? I mean, well, first of all, just I love his house and I want it and it's beautiful. But also there are like little touches. Like I was noticing his bed. I feel like the placement of his bed, there's a shot where he's lying in it and it just like tells us so much about his character like at the beginning because he has like a full-size bed but it's pushed up against the wall so it's like he has all these things and we see later in the movie he has like the capability to be connecting with people but at that moment in the story it's kind of closed off you know it's like metaphorical pushed up against the wall so only one person Mm -hmm. can really get into it but big enough that many people well probably two people could get into it yeah, and that it, it, in a way it kind of foreshadows the whole trajectory of the movie just by where the bed is. So that's very exciting to me. Yeah, what about the paintings in his house? At a certain point, somebody a museum wants to borrow the two paintings he has, and he refuses. Mm-hmm. He says, "I live with them," as if they're his housemates. Um, and it's almost as if he has decided that art is safe. Art is a safe companion. You know, read in bed, look at your paintings, don't interact with other human beings because they are not the safe companion. And um, that's also why he's blocked from making art because his art requires other human beings, but he doesn't want them to see him weak with all of his ailments. So there's something very self-protective in just trying to hide in art itself, which he is engaged in. Maybe that's why the painting at the end makes so much sense, right? Because that is a piece of art that he is uh, the the subject of rather than the maker of. So that um, it, it tells him in a way that it is safe to be engaged with other people in the making of art because as a child, he was. Not as the artist, but as a, as a model. Hmm. And it's able to reach him in a way, right, because it is art, but then it ends up being about him. So it ends up being an avenue at that point that he can hear and can experience and and is able to receive. It's like an appropriate gift in a way, right? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, because until that point, he really, even though he, we see him remembering his past, he doesn't want to uh, acknowledge that it's him. You know, he writes this, this play or this 
short story that gets turned into a play, Addiction. And he insists that his name be kept off it. You know, he tells Alberto to put Alberto's name on it. Um, and and so it's it's almost as if he wants not even to be the maker of the things he makes anymore. Like he's he's wary. Like he can he wants to hide within art. And if he comes out as a, the creator of it, he is no longer in hiding. So, yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about the shot that I like most in the entire movie. Although I think I already named one other shot as that. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I like all the shots. What can yeah, I say? Yeah, go on. Um, but one of the earliest memories we were shown is when he and his mom are, are traveling to the village. His mother is played by Penelope Cruz, by the way, and, and played brilliantly. His mother is a young woman, I think, right? They're traveling to the village, and they are on a... The train has dropped them for a connection to another town, but it's a there's a festival going on in the town. Um, so they can't catch the next train. They have to sleep overnight in the train station, and their fireworks going off. And so first we see this near the beginning of Pain and Glory. We see this as just a scene, you know, like the two of them together. And then at the end, <laughs> we see that scene again. And then the camera pulls back and we see a woman holding a boom mic. And what else do we see, Al? You're... I mean, it's just the set. There's the lights. There's the lights. Salvador directing it back and back in action after a long time off. Right. Right, so the the artifice is broken, and it says to us in a way, all these memories you've been watching along all along are actually the film within the uh -huh. film. You just didn't know it until yeah. this point, mm -hmm. <laughs> which, as it reveals, stunning. For I real, thought. yeah, really yeah, that stunning. Was great. <laughs> yeah, um, so that must say something about about what the film wants to say about art and artifice as well right like in a way these memories which were being shown are constructed mm -hmm. they, they might not be entirely real even they might be idealized mm -hmm. is that something that we can uncover like can apocalypse not only uncover like the factual truths of our lives but the deeper reality and 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 our yearnings about the past is that an okay thing to say about apocalypse i don't know yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, our our yearnings, our, our memories, the way we put them into conversation. I mean, I don't know, you think about, okay, we think about when, when Christ comes, what do, what do those who are um, alive at that time do as they encounter him? They put, they put Christ into conversation with their, with their stories from the past, mm -hmm. the ancient memories. They see him as a part of those stories. And we go back into some of those old stories from the Hebrew scriptures and do we know their factual truth? No, we know the power that they held. Mm -hmm. And, and we know that when we're, when we're able to put those, those myths, those stories into play with, with the moment that matters for us, like it can change our whole trajectory. Yeah. Um, so may, maybe there's something there. Yeah, and I mean, there's like that fact that the more you revisit a memory, the less accurate it becomes to what really happened because you're rewriting it over and over again in your mm -hmm. head. So, I mean, in a way, like reminiscing on things is kind of an apocalypse because the real memory is going to disappear. It's going to be Whoa. all you remember <laughs> is memory. Whoa, <laughs> reminiscence is apocalypse. <laughs> in a nice way. No, no, I agree. I think that's, that's yeah. lovely. Mm -hmm. Huh. So it's maybe it's like ending the factual 
quote unquote truth so that the 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 actual truth mm-hmm. can emerge like the emotional truth the emotional the felt truth yeah yeah wow <laughs> this movie is some deep stuff For man it's <laughs> all <I can> say. <laughs> And also, if we're speaking of shots that we like, there's it's the one that you were like, how is every shot in this movie beautiful, where they're in the doctor waiting room. And the waiting room has, like, these, like, pictures of trees, like, on a screen or something. Yeah. And the ceiling looks like the sky. And I really uh, love that setting because I feel like in the same scene in another movie, the commentary might be something like, look how fake this is, and it's just trying to approximate the world, but it's not. But I feel like in this, it was like... It's beautiful, even if it's not real. Even if it's even if the forest picture isn't real, it's beautiful oh. and it's there in the doctor's office. Yeah, that that ties into it. It bears its own truth. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And you know, I think a big thing about in terms of bearing truth as well in this movie is the body is bearing a truth, right? And like this movie is so deeply tied to his body and to what he's experiencing, what he's feeling, and the way that it treats the mind, not as some abstract thing either, but as a real part of the body that's deeply connected to it. Um, and, and the way that that uh, is a key to him understanding himself, a way that his body slows himself down and he has to actually reflect on it, <laughs> right? In ways that he, I think he explicitly says at some point for years, I never considered my body, right? right? He does. Um, and the body, the body is revealing truths to him. And even his mother talking about how the body reveals that he's got his father as part of him, <laughs> you know, and like, oh, and she's bragging that she has no varicose veins. <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> um, and, uh, and just how much that's a part of things. And even I love, I love the way in the, the tender scene there when, um, you know, Federico kisses him once for old time's sake, but clearly also because he hopes perhaps something else for for this right. moment um and when they speak that they're both still like aroused and their bodies can both still you know be a part of this thing um and yet salvador is at a place where that arousal that car that carnal desire that's a good thing also it doesn't make demands of him he can he can reflect on it and make it the choice like you said you know this thing ended <laughs> as God intended and and you know there's somewhere else to go with this um even as I think that opens up and is part of the opening up is his own reflections on desire and where desire first really began which of course what it's the first desire is the movie starts to make right Right. um so I think I think like you said and that being in a, a crescendo and like a turning point in him starting to go back towards creativity um it was born in the body in some ways yeah, and, and right, because of that first desire. So it's in one of the flashback scenes. Eduardo has been putting tile on the wall of the cave, and then he has to wash up, and, and the boy, Salvador, goes and lays down in the other room. And um, Eduardo asks him for a towel, and he comes out, and he sees Eduardo naked, and then he faints from sunstroke. Yeah. Right? So there's something about his body being involved from the very beginning something that is almost really not true about that first statement that he never really thought about his body yeah. for 40 <laughs> years um because his his awakening is of course bodily you know it, it has to be so there there's that but i also think 
one thing we just haven't said yet is that this movie is a bit of a meditation on aging. Mm-hmm. Um, so I turned 50 this month, and definitely my body is much more present to me now than at any other point in my life because it tells me when I'm not exercising enough or moving enough, it complains in ways it never did before. So I have to be attentive to it. In, and um, you can either fight that or try and mute it with pharmaceuticals or whatever, or you can accept it and be like, my body is now one of the main partners of my life, right? <laughs> and, I'm, and I will treat it with all the respect it deserves. Um, or sometimes I won't, but then, I, then it will tell me that I did not treat it with respect. <laughs> so, um, so I think there's, there's a kind of coming to terms with aging that is part of the movie, too. Because um, he, Salvador refers to him as old, a bunch, uh, to himself as old, a bunch of times in the course of the movie. But then when he gets the painting that Eduardo painted, when it kind of magically comes back to him uh, by being on the cover of this gallery that has sent him an invitation, and then he goes and he purchases it, and he finds a letter from Salvador, or from Eduardo, that Eduardo wrote to him on the back. Um, You know, Mercedes, who is driving with him, says, you could go and find him. And he says, no, too much time has passed, right? Like, this is enough for it just to be what it is. Like... You don't always have to try and put the capstone on these little miracles that appear in life or to think that you can perfect them by going further into them. Um, so that too, I think that too might be part of the the wisdom of aging. I'll claim it as the oldest person here, you know, that you kind of come to just say, a thing is what it is. I don't have to do anything to improve it. I can acknowledge its perfection just as it is. I don't have to be in control of it. And that's a nice place to be in one's life, really. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, any final thoughts before we move on to our, to our, the question that we will end every episode of this podcast with? I don't think so. I feel like for me, we, we hit on a lot I think there, this is a movie that you could talk about for a very long time and go a lot of different ways, which is one of the beauties of it, right? Like, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Any final thoughts, though? Not currently. I guess for my final thought, I'll just say, um, I don't know, really know Asier Axiandia as an actor, but when he is doing the monologue, oh uh, the play, the story that Salvador has given him, he is a genius. Mm-hmm. And um, and there is a line, Salvador says to Alberto at one point, you know, a, a true actor isn't always breaking down in tears. Uh, the, 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 the best acting is when you are just on the edge of tears. with Fighting them off. Fighting them off. Yeah. And then I was watching for that again and again in the course of the movie. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and you see it again and again. Like, Frederico is fighting off his tears while watching the play. Uh, when he and Salvador meet, they're both fighting off their tears. When Salvador is talking to his mother, neither of them are like openly weeping, but they're fighting off their tears throughout. <laughs> so it's it's a movie that can like subtly clue you in yeah. to to what it wants you to pay attention to without ever hitting you over the head with it. And that is yeah. a true gift. Okay. Well, Judd, do you want to introduce uh, the last question? I've been talking too much. Yeah, our uh, our final question is: uh, Would you take this film with you into the wilderness? 
Elle? Is the wilderness a metaphor or like the like a forest? <laughs> you know, you can answer it however you would like. Okay, well, the answer either way is yes, because I <laughs> that it's beautiful, and I I love like the voice of it. It just I'm I'm in a real kick right now about that kind of just like upfront matter of factness in a way that's like sweet and like kind. Like I'm I'm loving that right now. It really it spoke to me in a lot of ways in where I am currently in my life, and also it's just beautiful and a great movie so yes I'll take it into the metaphorical or real wilderness <laughs> yeah for some reason this this season of our little podcast here I've convinced myself I can only take one of these films in with me uh I could take all of them but but I'm just I'm messing with the game by saying there's got to be only one and I think this is it um, even though it's the first one you're going to hear about, dear <laughs> listeners, even though that will make every other movie somewhat anticlimactic, um, this is one that will inspire my awe, my tears, my laughter, that, you know, just kind of grabs hold of you, and um, that I feel like I have the most in-depth relationship with and, and could gain from just going further and further into that relationship. How about you, Jed? You know, I first saw this movie on my night off in between taking the GOEs, which are the general ordination exams for those in the ordination process for uh, priesthood in the Episcopal Church. And so I had a day off between three days of exams and went and saw this movie, um, which uh, you might call that a wilderness week. <laughs> and this movie just reinvigorated me you know, for, for what was going forward. And uh, it was just such a joy to behold and to sit in a theater and to take in. Um, but upon returning, the fact that it grew in estimation and a second watch and um, is a movie that I think just has a, does have a clear voice. Uh, and it's saying, it's speaking to so many parts of life without being overwhelming. Um, and so there's a gentle wisdom that's hidden inside this movie that's very bold, and I'm grateful for it. I would definitely take it with me into the wilderness. Well, dear listeners, thank you for listening to Films in the Wilderness. Our theme music is provided by the great Brianna Kelly. We are so grateful for the support of the Diocese of Southern Ohio, and especially for the work and support of Emma Steinmetz, Christopher Richardson, and Jason Odin. Um, we will be back next week with... Jed, what's our next film? Our next film will be Wild Rose. Wild Rose next week. So join us then.